0: Are y'all just a little uncomfortable? Maybe I've lost my way already and I haven't even started. It is such a joy for me to be here with you that I thought I would take just this first 30 seconds and have an image of you burned into my brain. So that I could remember on March 19th, 2006, what you look like as a church. And that's what I was doing as I was just scanning the audience here. I just want to see your faces. I want to see your smiles. I want to see your, your eagerness and your anticipation of good things to come. Because I suspect that in the not so distant future, maybe when you're in your new facility or, or you're, you know, getting on with big things for the Lord, it'll be a much different crowd. But I want to remember this crowd right here. I want to remember you. And I want to have that image in my mind of you. I've been praying for you for about four years. Probably explains why you've had some of the problems you've had. Say the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Unfortunately, all you got was me. So, But when Paul and team first came over, it was a pleasure for me to began to do my ministry, which was to work with pastors and leadership teams all over the uh, United States and Canada and even around the world. And what uh, Paul didn't know at the time was, but his was the first church that came. And so I was like a kid in a candy shop. I get a chance to mess up a church team. So it's like, how great is that? So it was, uh, it was an absolute delight for me to spend uh, two or three days with their team then. And uh, I will tell you that Perimeter Church and our team there in Atlanta is aware of what you guys are doing here in Wilmington. And we pray for you regularly. I pray for you often. And so I'm very excited to know what God might be doing here in the fellowship at Christ Community in Wilmington. So I bring you greetings from the members of Perimeter. Consider them your sister church. And if you're ever in Atlanta... We would love to have you come, be a part of our worship experience. Not too long ago, something really significant happened to me. Some of you, as I look across the audience, probably have had the same experience. I turned 50. Up to that time, now my children... Being ever the grace-filled children that they are really encouraged me. You know, dad, that's pretty old. You know, we can help you get to the car. I drive a big red suburban truck. We'll have to get you a step stool so you can step up into it. And so they were always trying to encourage me. And then the Lord really thought, well, I'll give you an encouragement from the Word. And He gave me a verse when I was 49 that I prayed through my 50th year. And the verse was in Psalm thirty seven twenty-five. It's a great verse for those of you that might be approaching this milestone in your life. Uh, you might want to claim this as your own. Psalm thirty seven twenty-five simply says this first half, not the second half. I was young and now I'm old. <laughs> I was young, but now I'm old. My daughter, Ever the Encourager, said Dad, that really is your verse, isn't it? And maybe you were old before you realized it. So I have uh, I have survived that experience, and I'm moving on. Um, God has given me a new verse for this half of my my life, and I find that verse in Psalm 90, verse 12. Some of you probably know this verse. It says, "Teach me to number my days, that my heart might get wisdom." And what I've discovered is that God has really begun to plow that verse into my heart in a very significant way. I realize, in my own sense of mortality, that I don't have as much time probably on looking forward as I have looking back. I may not have till this afternoon. I just don't know. But I have a sense that I'm not going to be a hundred years old. You don't look like this and make a hundred. My wife says I should get in shape. I say, round is a shape. I'm perfectly happy with it. My daughter has given up desserts for Lent. I'm giving up dieting for Lent. We all have to make sacrifices. There's a saying that says that wisdom comes with age. But sometimes age arrives alone. I've met people who are old, who are not wise. I've met people who are young who are very wise. I'm asking God that I might be wise in my old age. I'm asking God to show me how I might measure my days and number my days in such a way that I might see more fruit in my life from this time forward than I ever saw from this time back. And the kind of fruit I'm talking about really is, is the fruit of seeing people ushered into the kingdom of God. That's what I'm asking God to do. Would you let me be a part of the harvest? Would you let me be a a laborer in the fields? Would you give me the joy of seeing people come into a life-transforming encounter with the kingdom of God? More than I've ever seen in my past life. So that's what I'm asking God for at this time in my life. I'm asking Him to give me that fruit. I am begging Him to give me that fruit. I'm asking Him that daily. It is a prayer I wake up every morning and ask God, would you let me see some fruit today for the kingdom? I work for our church. I'm on staff. I wasn't always in the ministry uh, field of work. I was uh, an executive with GE. I was an executive with a Canadian Communications Company. What I've discovered in the, in the church world is that I'm around Christians all the time. And it's very, well, there's some people on staff I'm not really sure about, but, you know, I keep telling them I'm praying for them. And I'm, they're on my target list. But in all honesty, the truth of the matter is they're all Christians. I work with pastors. I work with leadership teams. I work with fellow staff people at our church. I work with members in our own church. And so I don't really have the opportunity to be around as many non-Christians as I once did when I was in the corporate world. So my natural opportunities have diminished. And my contact with uh, unchurched people has diminished. So I had to begin to think, what kind of a strategy can I engage in that's going to give me an opportunity to have contact with unchurched people? There are four principles that really have been rattling around in my head. And these are the things that I live with and I think about constantly. One, truth matters. Two, people matter. Three, relationships matter. And four, this one is profound, if you're taking notes, lunch matters. Lunch matters. Over the Christmas holiday, uh, our campus outreach ministry at our church, uh, combined with John Piper's church, uh, their campus outreach ministry, and we had a big conference in Atlanta and Randy, our senior pastor, our lead teacher at Perimeter, was the was the main speaker. And I was at this conference for the entire time. And we had a speaker there whose name was Joe Ehrman. Have any of you ever heard of Joe Ehrman? Joe's a coach up in Baltimore in a high school football system. And uh, he is the subject of a book called Season of Life by Jeffrey Marks. It's a great book. I'd encourage you to read that. He was given a presentation on the topic of compassion. And right in the middle of that very gripping conversation he was having with the students, uh, he made this statement. It was almost kind of a toss away. And I heard it and it just captured my imagination. He made this statement. You can change the world by who you choose to have lunch with. Did you catch that? You can change the world by who you choose to have lunch with. Something about that little phrase really resonated with me. It was simple. It felt large to me. You can change the world. I like things that are large. I like the chance of being a part of something that's big. It felt significant. It involved food. Or at least it had potential of involving food. I always like things that involve food. But as I began to think about that, I thought, I wonder if that, that concept is rooted in truth. And I began to do a personal study through the scriptures on what do the scriptures have to say about meals? And I was amazed how much there is in the Bible about meals and how God uses meals to forge relationships. And then he uses those relationships to accomplish his purpose. Meals throughout the Bible are opportunities or were opportunities for deceit. A lot of deceit around some meals, treachery, compassion, celebration, reconciliation, and restoration. Have you ever been to a meal? I bet you have, where you just hated for it to end. Nobody wants to be the first person to push away from the table. A meal has the power to not only nourish our physical body, but I think when it's Combined with good fellowship around the table, it can be something that nourishes our soul. I think there's a reason why the scriptures have so much to say about meals. Let me give you a quick survey. I had, I was telling your leaders yesterday that I had intended to go into great detail on all of these passages, but, well, we would be here till three or four o'clock if I did that. So I'm just going to kind of toss a stone across the pond and let it skip across some passages. What I'd encourage you to do is, on your own, take your scriptures, do a little study, and see if you come to the same conclusion that I've come to. Do you know what the first mention of food is in the Bible? Who can tell me? Anyone. The apple. Adam and Eve. What's my premise? You can change the world by who you choose to have lunch with. Did the world change when Adam and Eve had that apple? Absolutely. The first mention of a full meal in the Bible is in Genesis 14. Abram and the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Abram had just won his battle. He was bringing a tithe to the king of Salem and and Melchizedek came and, and laid a banquet before him. Genesis 18, Abraham had some visitors who came and he says to them, let me bring you a morsel of food, which would have been suitable and appropriate for that hour of the day. That's what people generally did. They had a morsel. They had bigger meals as they went through the day, but they started off the day with a small portion of food. And so what does he do? He goes out, he gets milk, curd, kills a fatted calf, hardly a morsel of food, it seems to me. He set a low expectation and overdelivered. I've made a career doing that. Um, Genesis 21, the feast... Uh, Celebrating the weaning of Isaac. And in this during this feast, it's during this feast that we see the tension that exists between Sarah and Hagar. And we see how Hagar and Ishmael are playing into the grand drama of the scripture, the story of Israel. Did the world change because of Ishmael? We're still living with the impact of that today. Genesis 25. Esau traded away his birthright for a piece of bread and a bowl of stew. Jacob then deceived his father. Exodus 12, Passover meal was instituted. In Judges, there's some very interesting stories in Judges about meals. I encourage you to read that. Boaz extended hospitality to a Moabite woman whose name was Ruth by inviting her to join him in a meal. They were later married. David was their great-grandson. 1 Kings 17, Elijah was being pursued. Felt like the world was on top of him. Felt like God wasn't watching out for him. Was famished. Thought he was going to starve to death. And God comes to him and said, I'll feed you by the ravens. The ravens will bring you food. The ravens were unclean. But they brought him food. And he drank from the brook. 2 Kings 4, Elisha prefigured jesus 's feeding of the five thousand by feeding one hundred with just twenty little barley loaves the size of your hand and some fresh ears of corn, and yet he fed the hundred and there was there was food left over psalms psalm twenty three and he just goes on and on and on. there are many more than what I have told you here in the New Testament. We have references to meals over and over and over from Matthew to Revelation. In the Gospels alone, there are seventeen passages that have nothing to do, have everything to do with just meals and Jesus having meals with people. You remember the Pharisees charge of Jesus? They said he is a glutton and a drunkard. Just because he was always going to these feasts. He was always having these feasts with people. He was always hanging around with sinners. I've often thought, what if Jesus were to come today to Atlanta, to Duluth, or to Wilmington, and carry on as he was carrying on then? Don't you think that we might be inclined to go up to him and put our arm, Jesus, you know, you might want to rethink some of this. You need to hang around with the religious people just a little bit. You're kind of offending them, kind of ruffling some feathers. I'm sure he would look at us and smile and say, appreciate that advice. Every meal that's recorded about Jesus always had sinners sitting around the table. Every single meal. Even in John 21, you have him sitting on a shore. You may remember the story. The guys have been out fishing. They're discouraged. Jesus has, you know, been, he's been killed and you know, their ministries haven't been launched yet. Peter's in the ship or in the boat and he looks on the shore and he sees what he thinks is Jesus. He says, I believe that's Jesus. He girds up his line and pops himself in the water, ever the impulsive one, and swims to shore. And he comes up on the shore and there's a charcoal fire that has been laid. significance of that charcoal fire is that it was around a charcoal fire that Peter denied Christ in the courtyard. And I I bet, I bet that when he walked off that, out of that water up to that shore and he caught a whiff of those charcoals, his mind immediately went back to that courtyard and said, oh, how will he ever forgive me? Will he ever forgive me? And on this charcoal fire, Jesus had these fish laid out and he was he was preparing a meal for him. It was a meal of restoration. He was going to restore Peter back to the fellowship. And what did he, what was it that he charged Peter to do? Feed my sheep. You can change the world by who you choose to have lunch with. I'm looking at some of you right now and I know you don't believe that. I can tell you—you you give me those pretty Sunday morning faces, but I can see that you're not buying it. But I'm telling you, you can change the world by who you have lunch with. As humans, we're wired for relationship. That's the way we're built. You remember what Jesus—excuse me—what God said when He was in, created Adam, and He said, "It is not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a helper." From the very beginning, we've we've been wired for relationship. We live in a, in a time when relationships are increasingly more difficult to have. We get our food through the drive-in. You know, everything's on the go. We're on the go. I just read last week a statistic which I, I was just alarmed when I read it that said the typical American family today has on average one family meal a month where all the family is together. That's that just is staggering to me. Gallup has also uh, done some polls and he came up with seven basic needs that people have. Uh, listen to this. There's a need for shelter and food. There's a need to believe that life has meaning and purpose. There's a need for a sense of community and relationships. To drive that point home, how many of you have heard of MySpace, Facebook, so the college kids, they know these things. Uh, those are social networks that are, that are birthed out on the internet, and I mean, they are just incredible how many people are on these things. They're looking for relationships. There's a need for respect and appreciation. There's a need to be listened to. And to be heard, there's a need to help them grow in their faith. These are people who have identified these things. And there's a need for guidance on their spiritual journey. Whatever that may mean. Now we live in a time when opportunities are great for serving God and doing, and seeing Him do great things in our society. I think we don't believe it. I think a lot of times we think that things are, they're just going the wrong direction. But the truth is, I believe that this is a great opportunity for us as Christians to make a stand for Christ and see the gospel be sent through our society. People really are hungry for relationships. Last year, I had the good pleasure of going to Iran and uh, we were on an exploratory journey over there. Uh, and we were all trying, also trying to support the, the there was some Presbyterian churches over there. So we were over there supporting those pastors who are very much a beleaguered lot. And uh, we were at this one particular shrine. There were college students scattered all over the grounds, and they were sketching with charcoal and watercolors. This particular shrine, and I was standing there just admiring and praying. I was prayer walking, uh, prayer walking that space, and I was praying for these college kids, asking God to just bring His shaft of light in there somehow. And this one young college student came up to me and said, "Where are you from?" I said, "I'm from America," and. The conversation typically went a certain way once I would say that to people in Iran. Uh, but This guy said uh, to me, called me completely flat-footed, do you know T.S. Eliot? I said, well, not personally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I have read his stuff and he said, would you allow me to quote some T.S. Eliot to you? And I said, well, I would be delighted for you to do that. Would you do that for me? And he said, yes. And this is what he quoted. Thus your fathers were made, fellow citizens of the saints, of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself the chief cornerstone. But you, have you built well that you now sit helpless in a ruined house? And just as he finished that last line, his other classmates came up and said, uh, joined in the conversation. Where are you from? I said, I'm from America. They said, oh, we love America. We love George Bush. I said, so do I. We all love George Bush. Maybe some of you don't. That's OK. Uh, but as that conversation shifted so dramatically from what he had quoted to this conversation about America, and they loved to practice their English as they were walking away, this young man turned back to me. And he made this statement. He said, T.S. Eliot touches my soul. I was just speechless. I was speechless. What do I say to this young man? I could sense that there was a shaft of light coming from the heavens right there. What do I say to this young man? And before I could say anything, his... his Companions grabbed him and dragged him off and off they went. I'm telling you, the world needs what we have. Howard Hendricks says you can influence from afar, but you've got to be close to impact. That speaks to the concept of relationship. Maybe you don't think God could use you like that. Do you know how to eat? If you can eat, you're going to love my plan. God can use you. If you can eat, God can use you. In in Montgomery, Alabama during the Civil Rights era, Rosa Parks became a face that everybody recognized because she got on the bus and she was weary from having worked all day. She was weary from the treatment that the social structures were putting on her. And she sat down on the front of the bus. And she changed the world by sitting in that seat. Just north of Montgomery, Alabama and Birmingham, Alabama, Alabama, one of the pictures that I remember vividly seeing was young college students, young high school students in white shirts and ties sitting at a lunch counter trying to have a meal in Birmingham, Alabama. That picture went across our country. I would suggest to you that that changed the world. You can change the world by who you choose to have lunch with. Luke chapter five is where we uh, are supposed to be. We're now there. If you like outlines, I've put an outline on this passage and it's just four points. I'll give you the points now so you can write them down. And they are this. First, we see that Jesus calls Matthew. It's kind of interesting. I think at this point, Matthew may already have been a Christian. He may have already accepted Christ. He may have already been a follower of Christ. If you you read the first half of chapter 5, in verse 3, you have Christ asking Peter to put out this little boat in the water and let me speak from the water to the crowds. Levi, Matthew, was a tax collector who had a tax booth there by the Sea of Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. No doubt he knew Peter, James, and John because he probably assessed them with taxes. And so he's out there, and I suspect there's a good chance that he may have heard Jesus speak. But he knew as a tax collector, being the most reviled person in society, a person that rabbi said, it's not likely that they can be ever be repentant. They were generally banned from the synagogue. So even if he was a follower of Christ, he would have said, there's just not much chance of me having any interaction with this new rabbi, Jesus. But here he is in his little tax booth, and he sees a crowd coming toward him. Oh, who is that? That looks like that's the rabbi. And Jesus comes up, and he comes to Matthew's tax booth, and he says, follow me. And Matthew left his booth and followed Jesus. So Jesus calls Matthew. What does Matthew do? Matthew calls his friends. Come over to the house. I want you to meet that rabbi. And then, a little bit further in the passage, the Pharisees call the disciples. They're a little ticked off at what's going on here. And then finally it closes, that passage closes with Jesus calls sinners to repentance. What was Matthew's first instinct here? Jesus called him, he followed, his first instinct was, I'm going to get my family and friends to come and enjoy this time with the rabbi. I'm convinced that God uses two things over and over and over to advance his kingdom. His word, exposure to his word, And exposure to his people. It's a two-barbed hook that I believe God uses in the lives of the unchurched. His word and his people. That's us. I believe Jesus also models for us the most basic and common practice of humanity. As a means of building relationships with people outside of our normal circle. And that would be the meal. Do you guys want to impact the city of Wilmington? You can do it. In fact, the city of Wilmington wants you to do it. They told me. I talked to some city fathers. They said, we want Christ's community to really be an impact in our community. So they want you to do it. You can change the world by who you choose to have lunch with. The concept of the meal, what did Jesus actually leave us to remember his sacrifice and look forward to his return? He left us a meal. The Lord's table. We do that in observance of what he's done for us and what he's going to do for us when we're reunited. That meal, that Lord's table, is done in community and in relationship. It points us toward the great wedding feast that we're going to see in Revelation 19. I think there's something significant about the way God, through the course of scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, has used a simple thing like the meal to extend his grace to us. So what are you going to do with this? So how do we do this? How do we do this? I mean, it's not a I'm left handed. So, you know, it's like you take the fork and use, you know, do you use the right tools? There's some things that you got to do. One, you got to ask God to bring people across your path that are not a part of your circle today. You have to look for opportunities to build relationship, relational bridges where you live, work and play. There are natural circles that are circles that you're living in, you're working in and you're playing in today. And there are people there who are not. A part of the family, and you should be asking God, "How can I be used to bring Your kingdom to these people?" You need to have them over to your house for a meal, just to get to know them, build a relational bridge, and in the context of the, that relationship, look for opportunities, pray for opportunities to share the good news. The biggest challenge I think is we have to make room in our lives for those who the Lord has brought along our path. Uh, we uh, we need a tool. We need to be contemporary with our culture without being acculturated to it. We we need to be able to speak intelligently with people in our culture, even though we may not buy into everything that they're selling. We need to do little practical things like learn how to carry on small talk. We need to learn how to be interesting, but also how to be interested. We have to ask God to put on our heart the very thing that's on his heart. And that is that there are people out here in our communities that are perishing. You can change the world by who you choose to have lunch with. I suggest you practice with your spouse. Practice with your spouse. Try to have a meal and talk about something other than the kids. You know, Make small talk. Try to be interesting. Act like you're interested. It'll be a stretch for some of you. But it's good practice. I'd encourage you to have meals with your children. Not only just in the family, but individually. But don't stop there. Extend that table of grace out to the unchurched, to the people that are not in the family. Have meals that have a purpose. Ask yourself the question, what kind of a neighbor am I to my neighbor? The most radical part of Jesus' ministry was that he ate and dined And spent time with broken sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. I honestly believe we can change our neighborhoods by who we choose to have lunch with. I really believe that. My wife and I are embracing this as a new strategy for us as we look at our neighborhood. Say, how can we be used in our neighborhood? There are four things that will keep you from doing this. One is complacency. You just don't think it really is necessary. Two is a fear of contamination. I don't want to be around those guys. They smell bad. They talk bad. They look bad. Get a little slimy feeling when I'm around them. Uh, number three is a lack of cross-cultural skills. Inability to speak intelligently to those people. And number four is a confusion about what the content of the gospel really is. Being missional means that you're living in a redemptive manner in your community. That's all I'm really asking you to consider. Randy, our pastor, has this. He says this, much along with what Paul said when we were looking at the confession this morning. He has this little thing. He says, God allows bad things to happen to us so that good things might happen in us and eternal things could happen through us. I I would change that just a little bit for our purposes here this morning and say that God allows life, both good and bad, to happen to us so that good things can happen in us and eternal things can happen through us. I ask you this question. Do you have on your heart what is on God's heart? Do you have a love for people that are in your community who don't know him? Would you ask God to give you that? If, if you look in Luke chapter 12, verse 20, there's a story about the rich, rich young fool who's, uh, who's building more barns. And then you have in Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one, the manager of the talents. And on the one end, God says to this rich young man, he says, you fool, this day your soul is required. And to the manager of the talents, he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And if we said those are the two ends of the continuum, where do we find ourselves dropping on that continuum? Are we on the you fool side or are we on, well done, thou good and faithful servant? I would just encourage you to let you think about having on your heart what's on God's heart. Psalm 912, teach me to number my days that my heart might get wisdom. I'm asking God for more fruit today and Tomorrow than I've ever had before. Could I challenge you with just this last thought? Would you say to the Lord that you would not eat alone? That you would prayerfully consider giving your meal times to the expansion of the kingdom? It's a small thing. Maybe two lunches a week with a co-worker. Maybe having a neighbor over to the house for a cup of coffee, would you consider doing that? You can change the world by who you choose to have lunch with. Well let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for this uh, expression of your fellowship here in Wilmington. Um, Though I don't even know them, they have had a special place in my heart for a number of years. And I'm thrilled now to finally be with them and to be able to share this time of worship with them. Lord, I pray that our time here this morning has been beneficial. If there's been anything that i said that was wrong, improper, inappropriate, would you please blot it from their hearts and minds? Father, whatever is done through this body here, I would pray... That will be done to your glory. And now, Lord, we look to our time of worship when we have the opportunity to bring our tithes and gifts to you. And it's a form of worship, Lord, that we long to be a part of. And we are grateful that you give us this chance to do this. I pray that you would just bless this time as we move into this moment of our offering. And we give you thanks for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.